Welcome to episode 178 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we are looking at Via Negativa. It's season 8, episode 7. The action primarily takes place in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The original air date was December 17th of the year 2000, and the IMDb user score is 7.9 out of 10. In the pre-credits teaser, we see a law enforcement agent get woken by his partner. He fell asleep on a stakeout. The house they were staking out has a front door that's wide open, the lights are off. The two partners go in to explore the house, and they find members of the cult that they were surveilling have all been killed in bed, and all with what appears to be some sort of blunt instrument through the forehead. We see a man kill the senior agent with an axe to the forehead, and finally the agent who fell asleep encounters him, and we just get a brief glimpse of a man who's got a third eye in the middle of his forehead. After the teaser, Scully calls Doggett. It lets him know that they've been assigned to the case, but says that she's unable to join him. When Doggett gets there, they find that the agent who had fallen asleep was locked in his car, and Skinner was on site. I'm not sure how they figured out that the car was locked from the inside. They say that repeatedly, but to me that's a distinction that can make a lot of sense when you're dealing with apartments like they will deal with shortly for the senior agent who died behind a chained apartment door. That chain would have to have been done from the inside. But how they could make that determination for a car, I don't get. I think that one, it was more of a statement to set up the mystery than something that they could actually back up with things that we see on screen. As they continue on, they say that they don't see how this could be an apocalyptic cult. They had no idea that it was. They were just under the impression that they were involved in drug trafficking and drug sales. And it turns out that the former killer, who had since claimed to have found God and was running the cult, was trying to find a way to contact God via negativa, or through hallucinogens. As the case progresses, Doggett gets increasingly frustrated by Scully's absence, especially since he's not getting any clear understanding of why she's not there. And they do pursue it. They find the source of the drugs that they're getting, although the man who was selling them to them was begging to have a super amphetamine with him. He said he needed it, didn't have it, fell asleep in prison, and died. And this is our first indication that Doggett really might be starting to warm up to some of the paranormal explanations. He does eventually determine that, yes, these people are being killed in their sleep. The man who was doing it died in a coma after using a circular saw on his own forehead to try and cut out the third eye. It appears it was more his subconscious attacking people in their dreams than himself. So while Doggett is open to that, he had some experiences during his own dreams that he couldn't otherwise explain. This is also his first direct contact with the lone gunman. Since Scully was sidelined, they needed another way to do it. And they were impressed with him. At this point, he wasn't believing in the paranormal explanations. But he also recognized that, yeah, the person he was investigating is a believer. So understanding and pursuing in that sense would give you a better feel and better odds of capturing the guy. So he did act saying, okay, clearly this guy believes it. Where would that lead him? What's the next step? So in the end, Doggett has experiences that he cannot explain. He calls out the new assistant director or deputy director, 
not Skinner, but Kirsch, saying, what do you mean this case is closed and we're done? Yeah, we got the bad guy, but we still don't understand the modus operandi. We still don't understand the motivations. And Kirsch is saying, I'm satisfied knowing we got the right guy and that he's in a coma. He's never expected to wake up. He's not a danger to others. You just go on to the next case. Doggett also does relax his stance with Scully a bit when he's in a hospital with other patients, notably the man who tried to cut out his own third eye with a circular saw and sees that Dana Scully has checked in on another floor as a direct result of the hospital using insanely poor privacy law enforcement where they just hand you a clipboard and you can see everyone who's checked in on the past few days. On the production side, this was written by Frank Spotnitz. We've seen a lot of his work before, and it's the first of what will eventually be seven episodes directed by Tony Warmby. And I got to admit, he rapidly became one of my favorite X-Files directors, and he's going to be doing a lot of good work here in seasons eight and nine. According to the IMDb, he's best known for working as as a director on Dempsey and Makepeace, The X-Files, The Gentle Touch, and NCIS. He got his directorial debut directing a couple episodes of Coronation Street, a British soap opera, in the late 1960s. That started a couple years before Doctor Who and has still been running uninterrupted, continues to this day. He has directed 53 episodes of NCIS, as well as episodes of 90210, Bones, although not the episode of Bones that spoofs the X-Files that we will be discussing in a later time, an episode of Supernatural, episodes of Providence, Crossing Jordan, Jag, a couple of Rockford Files movies. He has been working very regularly right since his debut in the late 1960s, including Mammy Vice, The Equalizer, and Magnum P.I. I would say the main guest star here is probably Keith Zarbajka. I hope I'm pronouncing that remotely close. This is his only X-Files appearance, but he's been doing a lot of voice work, not just in video games or in Transformers as Laserbeak, but he's been working at live action. He was Daniel Holtz in Angel. He's Donatella Redfield in Supernatural. Eight appearances there. Also known for The Dark Knight, Argo, and We Were Soldiers. 239 credits to his name. And again, a lot of them are with voice work. He's got a very recognizable voice. Now, Kirk B.R. Waller reprises his role as Agent Gene Crane. We discussed his filmography before. Grant Heslov appears. Now, he is actually better known as a producer and director now, although he did play Andre Barmanis in this one. He was the man that was providing the drugs to Tippett. But he's best known on the IMDb for his work producing Argo, Good Night and Good Luck, and The Ides of March. He also acted in Scorpion King, Catch-22, and a number of other shows, including the 1980s Twilight Zone. His acting credits go back to his debut as Mark in the Fonzie's Visit episode of Joni Loves Chachi. Now, Lawrence Lejean plays Angus Stedman. He was the senior of the two officers on the stakeout at the beginning, best known for So Undercover, From the Rough, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Alias, forwarding acting credits to his name. Kevin McClatchy plays James Leeds. He was the stakeout agent who fell asleep at the beginning. 31 acting credits to his name, some of which are in post-production, with a career that starts in a 1993 episode of The Guiding Light. 
best known for his work in Unstoppable and Another World. So this is an episode that could have gone either way. It doesn't really build on the bigger mythology. There's a heavy focus on John Doggett rather than Agent Scully, while she is in the hospital dealing with abdominal pain, although it seems her pregnancy is fine in the end. But it it really does give us a chance to see Doggett on the job. He's getting quite a bit of screen time in the first half of the season, and that will shift gears as the season continues. Bring a little more of Scully back in. We also see a lot more of Skinner in the field this time, which is something the writers were always trying to do, but they, they had a hard time making it work naturally. But hospitalizing Scully with Mulder gone made it easier to get Skinner into the mix. So all in all, it's a, a good script, not a great script, but I think it is elevated by some extremely moody and very effective directing. I'm really giving kudos to Tony Warmby here. He took what could have been very run-of-the-mill and made it a very riveting episode. I also want to give a little shout-out to Mark Snow. There is a scene where Doggett is asleep and he's walking a little stiffly, which I think was his choice as an actor to say that this is a dream before the audience knows it's a dream. But seeing him walk stiffly around bars in what is a prison it's a little reminiscent of his role as the T-1000 in Terminator 2 when he was at the asylum going after Sarah Connor. And Mark Snow just very subtly and quietly slipped in a couple of notes from the Terminator score in that moment. I thought it was a really nice touch and just wanted to point it out for others. As far as the science is concerned, there's really no science behind the mysticism of the third eye, nor is there any way for someone's physical body while they're asleep to experience extreme trauma consistent with an axe blow to the forehead without actually receiving an axe blow to the forehead. That's all we have to say about Via Negativa. Join us again in two weeks' time when we take a look at Surekill. Thank you for listening.